Chapter 13, Part 2 of Struggles and Triumphs, or Forty Years' Recollections of P.T. Barnum, written by himself. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information, or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Nancy Cochran Gergen, Gilbert, Arizona. Struggles and Triumphs of P.T. Barnum, Chapter 13, in Belgium, Part Two. Upon quitting the battlefield, we were accosted by a dozen persons of both sexes, with baskets on their arms or bags in their hands, containing relics of the battle for sale. These consisted of a great variety of implements of war, pistols, bullets, etc., besides brass, French eagles, buttons, etc. I purchased a number of them for the museum and Stratton was equally liberal in obtaining a supply for his friends in Old Bridgeport. We also purchased maps of the battleground, pictures of the triumphal mounds surmounted by the colossal Belgique lion in bronze, etc., etc. These frequent and renewed taxations annoyed Stratton very much, and as he handed out a five-franc piece for a complete guidebook, he remarked that, he guessed the Battle of Waterloo had cost a darn sight more since it was fought than it did before. But his misfortunes did not terminate here. When we had proceeded four or five miles upon our road home, crash went the carriage. We alighted and found that the axle tree was broken. It was now a quarter past one o'clock. The little general's exhibition was advertised to commence in Brussels at two o'clock and could not take place without us. We were unable to walk the distance in double the time at our disposal, and as no carriage was to be got in that part of the country, I concluded to take the matter easy and forego all idea of exhibiting before evening. Stratton, however, could not bear the thought of losing the chance of taking in six or eight hundred francs, and he determined to take matters in hand in order, if possible, to get our party into Brussels in time to save the afternoon exhibition. He hastened to a farmhouse, accompanied by the interpreter, Professor Pent, Sherman and myself leisurely bringing up the rear. Stratton asked the old farmer if he had a carriage. He had not. Have you no vehicle? he inquired. Yes, I have that vehicle, he replied, pointing to an old cart filled with manure and standing in his barnyard. Thunder, is that all the conveyance you have got? asked Stratton. Being assured that it was, Stratton concluded that it was better to ride in a manure cart than not get to Brussels in time. "'What will you ask to drive us to Brussels in three-quarters of an hour?' demanded Stratton. "'It is impossible,' replied the farmer. "'I should want two hours for my horse to do it in. But ours is a very pressing case, and if we are not there in time we lose more than five hundred francs,' said Stratton. The old farmer pricked up his ears at this and agreed to get us to Brussels in an hour.' for eighty francs. Stratton tried to beat him down, but it was of no use. Oh, go it, Stratton, said Sherman. Eighty francs, you know, is only sixteen dollars, and you will probably save a hundred by it, for I expect a full house at our afternoon exhibition today. But I have already spent about ten dollars for nonsense, said Stratton, and we shall have to pay for the broken carriage besides. But what can you do better, chimed in Professor Pant, it is an outrageous extortion to charge sixteen dollars for an old horse and cart to go ten miles why in old bridgeport i could get it done for three dollars replied stratton in a tone of vexation 
"'It is the custom of the country,' said Professor Pant, "'and we must submit to it. "'By the way, this was a favorite expression of the professors. "'Whenever we were imposed upon, or felt that we were not used right, "'Pant would always endeavor to smooth it over by informing us it was the custom of the country.' "'Well, it's a thundering mean custom, anyhow,' said Stratton, "'and I won't stand such an imposition.' "'But what shall we do?' earnestly inquired Mr. Pent. "'It may be a high price, but it is better to pay that "'than to lose our afternoon performance and five or six hundred francs.' "'This appeal to the pocket touched Stratton's feelings. "'So submitting to the extortion, he replied to our interpreter.' "'Well, tell the old robber to dump his dung-cart as soon as possible, "'or we shall lose half an hour in starting.' "'The cart was dumped, and a large, lazy-looking Flemish horse "'was attached to it with a rope harness. "'Some boards were laid across the cart for seats. "'The party tumbled into the rustic vehicle. "'A red-haired boy, son of the old farmer, mounted the horse, "'and Stratton gave orders to get along. "'Wait a moment,' said the farmer. "'You have not paid me yet.' "'I'll pay your boy when we get to Brussels, provided he gets there within the hour,' replied Stratton. "'Oh, he is sure to get there in an hour,' said the farmer. "'But I can't let him go unless you pay in advance.' The minutes were flying rapidly. The anticipated loss of the day exhibition of General Tom Thumb flitted before his eyes, and Stratton, in very desperation, thrust his hand into his pocket and drew forth sixteen five-franc pieces, which he dropped, one at a time, into the hand of the farmer, and then called out to the boy, There now, do try to see if you can go ahead. The boy did go ahead, but it was with such a snail's pace that it would have puzzled a man of tolerable eyesight to have determined whether the horse was moving or standing still. To make it still more interesting, it commenced raining furiously. As we had left Brussels in a coach, and the morning had promised us a pleasant day, we had omitted our umbrellas. We were soon soaked to the skin. We grinned and bore it a while without grumbling. At length Stratton, who was almost too angry to speak, desired Mr. Pinte to ask the red-haired boy if he expected to walk his horse all the way to Brussels. Certainly, replied the boy. He is too big and fat to do anything but walk. We never trot him. Stratton was terrified as he thought of the loss of the day exhibition, and he cursed the boy, the cart, the rain, the luck, and even the battle of Waterloo itself. But it was all of no use. The horse would not run, but the rain did, down our backs. At two o'clock, the time appointed for our exhibition, we were yet some seven miles from Brussels. The horse walked slowly and philosophically through the pitiless storm, the steam majestically rising from the old manure cart, to the no small disturbance of our unfortunate olfactories. "'It will take two hours to get to Brussels at this rate,' growled Stratton. "'Oh, no,' replied the boy. "'It will only take about two hours from the time we started.' "'But your father agreed to get us there in an hour,' answered Stratton. "'I know it,' responded the boy. "'But he knew it would take more than two. "'I'll sue him for damages, by thunder,' said Stratton. "'Oh, there would be no use in that,' chimed Mr. Pinte, "'for you could get no satisfaction in this country.' "'But I shall lose more than a hundred dollars by being two hours instead of one,' said Stratton. "'They care nothing about that. "'All they care for is your eighty francs,' remarked Pinte. "'But they have lied and swindled me,' replied Stratton. "'Oh, you must not mind that. "'It is the custom of the country.' Stratton gave the country and its customs another cursing. "'All things will finally have an end, "'and our party did at length actually arrive in Brussels, "'card and all, 
in precisely two hours and a half from the time we left the farmer's house. Of course, we were too late to exhibit the little general. Hundreds of visitors had gone away disappointed. With feelings of utter desperation, Stratton started for the barber shop. He had a fine, black, bushy head of hair, of which he was a little proud, and every morning he submitted it to the curling tongs of the barber. His hair had not been cut for several weeks, and after being shaved, he desired the barber to trim his flowing locks a little. The barber clipped off the ends of the hair and asked Stratton if that was sufficient. No, he replied, I want it trimmed a little shorter, cut away, and I will tell you when to stop. Stratton had risen from bed at an unusual hour, and after having passed through the troubles and excitement of the unlucky morning, he began to feel a little drowsy. This feeling was augmented by the soothing sensations of the tonsorial process, and while the barber quietly pursued his avocation, Stratton as quietly fell asleep. The barber went entirely over his head, cutting off a couple of inches of hair with every clip of his scissors. He then rested for a moment, expecting his customer would tell him that it was sufficient, but the unconscious Stratton uttered not a word, and the barber, thinking he had not cut the hair close enough, went over the head again. Again did he wait for an answer, little thinking that his patron was asleep. Remembering that Stratton had told him to cut away, and he would tell him when to stop, the innocent barber went over the head the third time, cutting the hair nearly as close as if he had shaved it with a razor. Having finished, he again waited for orders from his customer, but he uttered not a word. The barber was surprised, and that surprise was increased when he heard a noise which seemed very like a snore coming from the nasal organ of his unconscious victim. The poor barber saw the error that he had committed, and in dismay, as if by mistake, he hit Stratton on the side of the head with his scissors and woke him. He started to his feet, looked in the glass, and to his utter horror saw that he was unfit to appear in public without a wig. He swore like a trooper, but he could not swear the hair back onto his head, and putting on his hat, which dropped loosely over his eyes, he started for the hotel. His despair and indignation were so great that it was some time before he could give utterance to words of explanation. His feelings were not allayed by the deafening burst of laughter which ensued. He said it was the first time that he ever went a sightseeing, and he guessed it would be his last. Several months subsequent to our visit to Waterloo, I was in Birmingham, and there made the acquaintance of a firm who manufactured to order and sent to Waterloo barrels of relics every year. At Waterloo, these relics are planted, and in due time dug up and sold at large prices as precious remembrances of the great battle. Our Waterloo purchases looked rather cheap after this discovery. While we were in Brussels, Mrs. Stratton, the mother of the general, tasted some sausages which she declared the best things she had eaten in France or Belgium. In fact, she said, she had found little that was fit to eat in this country, for everything was so Frenchified and covered in gravy she dared not eat it. But there was something that tasted natural about these sausages. She had never eaten any as good, even in America. She sent to the landlady to inquire the name of them, for she meant to buy some to take along with her. The answer came that they were called Saucisse de Lyon, Lyon Sausages, and straight away Mrs. Stratton went out and purchased half a dozen pounds. Mr. Sherman soon came in, and, on learning what she had in her package, he remarked, Mrs. Stratton, do you know what Lyon Sausages are made of? No, she replied, but I know that they are first-rate. 
Well, replied Sherman, they may be good, but they are made from donkeys, which is said to be the fact. Mrs. Stratton said she was not to be fooled so easily, that she knew better, and that she should stick to the sausages. Presently, Professor Pinte entered the room. Mr. Pinte, said Sherman, you are a Frenchman, and you know everything about edibles. Pray tell me what Lyon sausages are made of. Of asses, replied the inoffensive professor. Mrs. Stratton seized the package, the street window was open, and, in less than a minute, a large brindle dog was bearing the Lyon sausages triumphantly away. There were many other amusing incidents during our brief stay at Brussels, but I have no space to record them. After a very pleasant and successful week, we returned to London. End of chapter 13, part 2, recording by Nancy Cochran Gergen, Gilbert, Arizona.